I am drawn to helping people understand themselves and meaningful engagement gives me a boner. Hello, my name is Kay Anderson and you are listening to Lost Spaces, the podcast that mourns the death of queer nightlife. Every episode I talk to a different person about a venue from their past, the memories that they created there and the people that they used to know. So, if you ask me, and most people don't ask me, but I have the mic right now, so I'm going to just say what I'm going to say and you're going to listen. Hopefully, don't turn off. I hope that didn't put you off. Anyway, if you ask me, reality TV, as awful and cringy and addictive and delicious as it is, has been monumental in increasing queer visibility in TV and film and other visual mediums. So... Stay with me here. Like back in the late 90s, early noughties, when reality TV was still in its infancy, there was a lot of gay characters, for want of a better term, that were cast on these shows as I personally think is kind of like a shock tactic, like an, ooh, a real life gay, look at them, wow, how fascinating. But I think what was really lovely about that is that audiences warmed to these people and saw them more as just a stereotype or a character and were kind of rooting for them and actively interested and invested in their success. And as a result of that, that made TV execs a little less scared maybe about including queer characters in other TV shows like scripted shows and comedies and dramas and whatnot. Which brings us to today's guest. Now, everything that I have just said definitely applies to this man. He was the very first winner of the reality TV juggernaut Survivor all the way back in the year 2000. 2000, which is 23 years ago, if you can't do maths, and that is a scarily long time ago. And he became an overnight star. And I, and I don't use that word lightly, like the final episode of the show was watched by an estimated 125 million people, like 125 million people, like, whew. And they all got to watch his antics on the island, which included being the very first player to actually figure out that it was a strategic game and that you had to backstab people in order to win. But also, there was a lot of nudity. He was quite comfortable with his nudity, and we'll find out more about that in today's episode. Anyway, enough about that. Before he found fame, he was a bartender at Lost and Found, which was a gay bar that was found in Washington, D.C. And he reflects in our conversation that this place was important to him because it helped him to be comfortable with himself and to be confident in who he was and what he liked and how he liked to do it. We talk all about body image, Survivor, that TV show, he can't escape it, sorry it comes up. And it's probably the first time that I've ever heard someone use the word guile in a sentence. So I was impressed about that. Shall we get into it?
I always believed that feeling understood was a powerful, powerful connector, helping people feel as if I understood them, trying to understand mm -hmm. them, helped me get close to people and lost and found somehow reflected that for me in a way that uh, I just uh, resonated with, as you said. Wait, so you thought it was like a ragtag bunch of people that you could scoop up and nuzzle to your bosom. I don't know where I'm going with this. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's okay. You don't have to be going anywhere with it. I, I didn't necessarily think about nuzzling them to my bosom, um, but it was a very, very um, happy, relaxed, anything goes kind of a place for me. In fact, I tended bar naked at times. Uh, at Christmas, people would rip off my boxer shorts. Where did you put your tips? I didn't, and they would they would sit and on a jar oh, okay. or wherever oh, yeah. they okay. needed to until I <laughs> until I collected them. I just really enjoyed being expressive and with men and engaging the way I wanted to or the way they wanted to, and that was very very possible at Lost and Found. In fact, encouraged. <laughs> so I want to pick up on something that you've said when you were talking about the name sure. Lost and Found, in that you have never felt lost. Correct. Never, ever, ever? Well, I won't say never, ever, ever. I guess I would say maybe profoundly when I was very young. Uh, I felt overweight and misunderstood, terrified of going into, let's say, a gym shower. Terrified. And then when I was probably, I don't know how old, you know, very young in a gym shower, one of the boys peed on my leg and I was mortified, mortified. Um, no, no, traumatized almost. But I had been raped when I was eight as well oh, and shit. molested when I was 10. Oh, so shit. there were some really traumatic times that I was processing. And the thing that happened was that I processed them alone. I didn't share the fact that I'd been raped with anybody. I don't know why. I didn't have parents who I felt would be helpful or understanding. Mm -hmm. um, so my point is that quite early, I'm going to say by the time I was a teen, so by the time I was 13, 12, et cetera, my parents had divorced when I was 11, I didn't feel lost. I felt I understood how different I am from others if that makes any sense. And I knew I still needed to find a way to live in this world and a way to be in this world, but I I understand and accepted me more so than I think many of my peers who were struggling for much longer with who they are. If that makes any sense at all, I just think I accepted myself earlier than many of particularly the gay men that I've met and talked to. And I don't know how, I don't know why I was able to, but um, I certainly had the struggles ahead like, of that. So accepted your sexuality, accepted yourself or both? Both. So okay. my sexuality, I realized early was a big part of who I am. And that regardless of who I was otherwise, mm -hmm. it was something others attempted to define me mm -hmm. by. I learned later, particularly, you know, having 
won that show before 54 million that viewers. Show? What, what show? What? what? This what? silly show that people have seen. <laughs> that, and that others and their negative perceptions, whom I'd set aside, I'd not cared <laughs> for most of my life what other people thought. I now had to learn that those people and their thoughts have consequences. Can we go back? Yeah. So when you were talking about going in the shower at school, you talked about the shame around your body. Yeah. And that kind of resonates with me because I had lots of the same issues. Well, sorry, that's me making a massive assumption, the same issues, because you haven't actually um, unpacked what your issues were around that. But I had a lot of shame around my body. And it was really hard at sometimes to know where the shame around being non-heterosexual overlapped with the shame around my body and if they were one thing or if they were two separate things. And I wondered if you could just talk about your reflections. So for me, I guess they were inseparable almost, those, those shame issues. I felt fat always. I had a very critical parent who did her best, you mm. know, but was critical of my weight in a way that didn't help. So I, I'd always felt uncomfortable with my body size. I look at pictures now and I think, what the hell was wrong with me? You know, I was adorable uh, and I wasn't, you know, particularly overweight. I wasn't lean, but I wasn't particularly overweight either. And um, it didn't matter. That was an issue. I think penis size at that age was another consideration. I didn't know. I don't know why I was thinking about penis so much, but I was. Um, I, I, and I didn't understand girls or what they might expect or, or how I would pleasure or harm them sexually. I didn't really understand sex. Um, so there were a lot of things mixed into, oh, this thought about penis, I might be gay. <laughs> I am gay. You know, it was all intertwined and nudity um, in America, this has become an issue for me particularly, is, is a shameful yeah. thing in itself. It's a sexualized, shameful thing. And that, things in general that don't make sense bother me, but that doesn't make sense and really, really bothers me. So I've adjusted, I'd say, rather well. <laughs> <laughs> and now just couldn't give two hoots about uh, being nude and and part of my being naked in the year 2000, uh, knowing they're not going to show anything anyway, mm. had to do with my encouraging folks to recognize that we are all just human. We all have bodies and it is a non-issue. I wasn't successful in helping Americans see that. And I think we have backslid in any number of ways, that being one oh, of that them. that being like the smallest of them. Uh, exactly. But, but still an, an important one from my perspective with respect to who we are as humans. I think it's freeing. I think it's healthier. I think it enables us to protect and raise healthier children when we separate sexuality from nudity and we recognize that difference. And it's complicated because of who America is and who Americans mm. are. So it's, it's, again, something I enjoy talking about because I think the only way we get through any of these things is to 
expose them in dialogue. Yeah, yeah. And I think the difficult thing about that particular conversation is that people are quick to shut you down and make that connection between the sexualization of human beings and nudity, which then stifles conversation from happening. Well, it's um, not almost, it's automatic. It's very much uh, often uh, religious-based and religions, from my Mm. perspective, are as close to insanity as we can get without recognizing that. And, And the insanity of the rules and expectations around the various religions without any kind of protection from the damages that they do have been long enduring, just prevalent beyond what we even consciously often contemplate. And so folks are shocked uh, often by the concept of someone being naked, the idea of it not being sexual. I mean, there's just such, we still have such a long way to go to help folks even grapple with it, the concept kind of neutrally. (laughs) That doesn't mean it's not worth grappling with. I'm trying to think about what a world, like what growing up in a world where it was accepted would look like and what my relationship to my body would be if I was in that environment. There are folks out there, ask them, talk about it. I've met them. It's a very, very, very much healthier place. But they're still socialized with these conversations going on around them, even if it's not in their direct community. So they still must be aware. They are, but with a grounding, a self-acceptance and an awareness of reality. Uh, I'm working on a podcast. Um, (laughs) Everyone has a podcast, bloody hell. (laughs) Called Reality Matters. And this idea of reality, what's true, really, really matters. So when you say, I wonder... I say you would wonder less were you exposed earlier to more of reality. In fact, the further we, I think, journey from what's true, the more damage is done, the more roadblocks we encounter along the way, the more we suffer. And so the earlier we're, we're taught to think critically, to question things, including our own conclusions, the better off we are. And when it comes to just being a naked human being around other naked human beings, um, there is less of the trauma uh, associated with pretending that we aren't beings who are naked and learning to use the terminology that's appropriate to interact in ways that you recognize when someone isn't interacting appropriately clothing and the pretenses of modern society often enable over-sexualized behaviors and cause much of the damage. I mean, look at, look at, um, was it John JonBenet Ramsey? Mm. Or, you know, just one example, just, just this, this, the over-sexualized young girls who are, you know, in contests to see who can be loved more than the other one and and crowned or something. Everything about those contests is over-sexualized mm-hmm. is the only way I can, I, from the outside, I've never been to one. I, I don't really know what goes on. I But the lipstick and the poses and the, I mean, it's just 
dramatic from my perspective and says a lot, I think, about who we are. Yeah, and when you juxtapose it with drag shows, which are currently up for debate across numerous states in the US and it's happening here in the UK as well, it's really fascinating that one of those things is viewed as fine, like, oh, that's just something that people do and one of those things is being viewed as like this is degrading our children and bringing them to hell and it, it i know which one i think is healthiest well think about this for a moment how often do you perceive when people are up in arms and angry that the origins of their anger are really projections yeah <laughs> Here, I think it's similar. I think very often people who are angriest mm. about drag shows or drag queen hour at the library, et cetera, have no sense whatsoever of what they're really about and the lack of sexualized interaction. That's not what it's about. But they themselves are dealing with their own, mm -hmm. I don't know what it is, fears, discomforts, illusions, delusions, and, uh, and, and so they project onto the, the, the most convenient target, which happens to be drag queens. Yeah, and if you look at, I mean, hopefully I'm not talking about fake news because I never really dug any deeper when I read these articles, but if you look at all of these articles about people that are going into Target stores and ruining the signage and the Pride Month's concessions that they've got up, and then you find out that there's evidence of them being on Grindr or that they've had child pornography uh, on their computers seized by police and you're like, oh, okay, yes, this is, this is projection. It's not about the community grooming, it's about you. Yeah, and it shouldn't surprise anyone, but it does. And that's because we don't look at the origins of most of the hate speech uh, closely enough. We haven't dealt with it rationally. Enough. And I think there's also this other issue that we don't necessarily talk that much about, and this applies to most isms, is that we are all socialized in societies where homophobia, racism, sexism is so prevalent that it becomes really difficult for us to actually discern what is and isn't homophobia and our tolerance levels around those things is so much higher than it should be. And so when people coming out as this kind of white, middle-class, seemingly innocent-looking person denounces something, there are so many people that will just accept what they say because of the way they present and because of what they've been taught about different types of people. And that makes the whole thing so much more tangled and confusing to get through. Because there's even some, like, you know, in, in instances of homophobia or queerphobia, there are people within the community who are so seeped in those prejudices that they themselves embody those behaviours. And that's when it's just like, blah, walking through treacle. Well, it's complicated, but you're hitting the nail on the head from my perspective. I have a, a friend, a relatively close friend who I've known for many years, who uh, recently, um, last weekend or the weekend before, brought up how it still bothers him that there is like a gay pride month and a gay pride parade. And he just, he hates that kind of... Uh in your face stuff. Is he, is he a gay or is he a non-gay? 
he is a non-gay. Okay. Uh, but I do know, again, others uh, with that internalized homophobia that you mentioned. But to address the, the, the core of it, whether you're gay or not, mm. I helped him understand the difference between why he doesn't have a <laughs> hetero pride month <laughs> and why he isn't out in a in a straight pride, you know, parade <laughs> and why he doesn't feel the need to do that and why those of us who have been oppressed and are being oppressed currently in horrible horrible ways some you know, to the extent where people are murdered uh, still, requires him to be more open to understanding why it's necessary that we parade. Whether I go to the parade or whether I wear a pink tutu or don't, um, I'm still grateful for those who are learning to speak about who they are and to push against the oppressors and the oppression. So, you know, I think he got it a little bit. I think it'll probably take many more conversations, but I think he's his perspective is not uncommon. I think it is what you were just saying, uh, very, very often the case that people don't get it don't understand why this is necessary or that's necessary or why does it have to be, you know, shoved in my face? Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, like shoved in your face, like just don't go. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, let's go back. So let's go back to let's... the place where you enjoyed being naked. I'm trying to tie this all in to what we were talking about. Don't know why. Lost okay. and found. Yeah. Do you remember the first time you ever went there? No. No. <laughs> okay, that's an easy question. No. Do you remember the feeling if you don't remember the first time? Um, what I do remember most is this was a place I was able to be me, as me as I've ever been uh, for the first time in my life. And I loved it, relished it, enjoyed others being themselves, even if we had differences and... Uh, and it was just a really warm group of folks who who worked there and who were clientele. So loved it. You had been to other gay bars before and other gay spaces, but this was the one where you felt like you could be yourself, be the most you. Yeah. Why is that? Well, I th I think I just the nature of the bar, the nature of the group, uh, the generally of people that were there. They weren't too young. Um, like at tracks, I didn't feel as comfortable. It was a very, very, uh, I guess, much more super fit group and youthful and dancing. And there was less of what I thought of as acceptance of all um, in a place like that th than there was in Lost and Found. But I'd, I'd lived in New York for a year or so, a couple of years uh, before my time in D.C. You know, so I'd been to some Interesting. I've been to the Anvil. I don't know if you know these clubs, but really interesting places and experimented and had sex in, in, in clubs. And, you know, I was really pushing the boundaries and, and just enjoying it. I, I ran. That's not pushing the boundaries. Oh, that's nothing. Come on. Well, <laughs> it was the boundaries for me, you know. 
I, I ran the door at the Palladium uh, in New York, which was Steve Rubell and Ian Schrager's club that they opened after oh, wow. Studio 54. And, um, you know, the amount of sex that we had and, and that was going on really challenged me to understand my place in the world. And was that okay or was it not? And was it too much? And then Lost and Found just felt great, warm and fuzzy. It was, it was accepting of whoever we were. Okay. So if you were Goldilocks and all of these other bars were the bowls of porridge. There you go. This is the one that was just right. (laughs) There you go. Exactly. And so I'm really interested, like obviously through this podcast, I talked to lots and lots of people about different spaces and I'm really interested in what the ingredients are for a space to be successful or for a place to give people that permission to step into themselves and be themselves. And so it sounds like for you, and I'm probably putting words in your mouth by saying this, so do correct me, that it was a a lack of pretense. It was a lack of pretense. And it was the staff and the environment, the combination that created that. The staff was sufficiently mature that they embraced everyone and were happy I don't know how to describe. We're happy to be there. They weren't, they weren't bothered to make you a drink or to talk with you when you wanted somebody to talk to you. And there was, uh, there was lots of bar space, so you had lots of opportunity to be engaged in relatively meaningful ways with many of the the patrons. Yes, a dance floor. Yes, uh, more space and even an outdoor space to relax. But the sp- size of those spaces and the uh, the proximity to the staff and to someone who will take care of you and help you and chat with you and engage with you and you know play with you uh, um, made it mm. just right for me. And so what was going on in your life at this time? So you'd been living in New York, you'd moved for university, you were in Virginia. Where were you in terms of your queerness? Well, I think I knew, I I think I knew early um, that I've always wanted to share the journey. Um, It's the point for me, uh, sharing the journey. And I eventually met my partner uh, at Lost and Found at the bar. Uh, I was attending bar and he came in and he was in the military. And um, boy, was that fulfilling. And we were together eight years and... um, just an amazing, amazing, wonderful, warm uh, relationship. Are you are you okay with talking about him? Oh yeah, yeah, okay. no, I adore him. And you met him in Lost and Found. What do you remember that first meeting? Uh, yeah, generally, I remember his demeanor, and I remember his. Um, uh, how do I describe it? Uh, the, the the sense that this poor guy needed someone to help him loosen up a bit. <laughs> uh, and I felt I was just the right guy to help him do that. Oh. Yeah, he did seem quite uncomfortable. Um, Is that because he hadn't been going to lots of sex clubs in New York City, so wasn't familiar with what to do? Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he had not. <laughs> Do you remember what you talked about that first night? No, not not specifically, but 
but certainly I was drawn to helping him um, loosen up. I was drawn to helping him enjoy himself. How do you go about doing that? Shall we role play? Shall I be him and you be the... Sorry, no, let's not do that. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) If we were closer, we could because there's lots of physicality and there's lots of alcohol involved. (laughs) You know, he would order whatever he would order and it would be doubled for sure. Um, (laughs) Poor thing. (laughs) And as soon as he did um, start to loosen up, then wherever he wanted to go and however he wanted to, or it seemed he was comfortable um, being, I was, I was happy to join him there. So we got close physically quite quickly. Ah, okay. <laughs> Whilst you were on shift. Oh, sure. Gosh, yeah. And thereafter, <laughs> you know, and thereafter. I don't know if we went home probably the first time, maybe the second time together. I don't know. Mm. I can't remember whether it was actually the first night or not, but. Do you know how long it was before you were like, I'm locked in? With Ralph? Mm. I don't know about locked in, but I know relatively smitten right from the outset. It's it's something I pride myself on, this ability to quite quickly understand others and have a perception of generally whether or not this person is kind or without guile, a couple of very, very important factors for me. And that core is something to which I'm very, very, very attracted. Or outside those kind of those core items, I don't have a particular, you know, specific type. Um, I love men. Oh, gosh, I'm just so attracted to men and that's a spectrum. But those men to whom I'm attracted, I like to have this kind of core of kindness and and a lack of guile. Mm. But someone could have that core of kindness and a lack of guile, but still not be the one that gets your heart rate racing. True. I mean, there's got to be that... that... So what's the secret ingredient? What's the extra? Oh, wouldn't I be wealthy? <laughs> well, well, okay. <laughs> if I, if in, I, in this example with Ralph, what was that extra thing? Like, how did you know? Well, I think there just grew very quickly uh, a sense of his feeling safe with mm. me and my feeling safe with him. I don't know what the seeds of that are, what it is that makes people compatible in, in the most intimate way, but... I think those are things for me that it starts with. And then compatibility is kind of understood or grows and we adapt. Uh, I think I'm very adaptable. Um, mm. I thought that too in my, in my marriage, but boy, did I learn some things. Oh. So I don't, I don't know. It's uh... oh. <laughs> Let's not touch on that. Maybe. <laughs> He's like, where is he going? <laughs> oh, you can, sure. No, but I was going to say, I think it's really interesting that there... I guess some people are more locked into their intuition with these things. And some people are very good at questioning themselves, like me. (laughs) Well, there's a word that I like to challenge, you know, intuition. Um, It's a concept I think is often misunderstood. I think many people, when they use the word and when they hear the word, are thinking of 
something supernatural almost. And for me, I don't know that the thing that most people think of when they hear the word intuition Mm -hmm. even exists. I get a sense that our brains are very, very powerful and perceptive. And I know from science and from reading that we take in enormous amounts of data, much of which is nonverbal. And that which we take in and evaluate, particularly the nonverbal, is very, very influential. We come to make decisions about who it is we're around based on what we're perceiving Mm -hmm. about in someone's tone with their proximity in the way that they engage with us non-verbally, defensively or otherwise, lots of things other than their words. Uh, We don't, we have learned, we've evolved to not rely on, I love you. Oh, he loves me. Okay, it's done. I love him too. You know, la, 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 la. The words don't have as much meaning. Um, do I feel loved? Um, that's, what, that's what gets us. And that's communicated non-verbally. So, and this is where the bias comes in again, as we were talking about, because if you are looking at something in a negative way, you'll look for the negative clues that will confirm the things that you are looking for and vice versa. If you're looking for the positive then you're going to be like, oh, he looked at me sideways. Ah, that's it. We're getting married. So true. And it goes to the heart of how you just introduced yourself, how you just (laughs) said you engage. Because if that's what you're, if you're waiting for the shoe to drop, that shoe's going to drop. It's just a matter of time for you to find it. What kind of shoe? Converse? (laughs) High heel? Well, maybe the Louboutin. It it, it depends. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And I I need to move out of that mindset. I absolutely think that, yeah, I'm in this kind of survival mode all the time when I needn't be. And I think that's a really, really, really healthy point to pursue. I, I, you know, I, I don't know if you need to, but I think it's healthy to move out of that because of exactly what you said. I mean, if it's what you're preparing for, you're going to be unconsciously or otherwise looking for mm. it and you'll find it. You're a bright guy, I can tell. You know, you'll find it. You'll see that piece that you can then craft into evidence. The the context you were expecting. Yeah. And when you when you I'd like to think I'm realistic, but I think I lean toward the optimistic side. When you have fewer expectations and are open to more possibilities it's likely, too, that you might find those. So, so it very much, I think you are right, is up to us and our own way of being, our own engagement with another often creates that relationship, often leads to whatever it is that that relationship becomes. Yeah, I totally agree. I'm totally on board with everything that we've been discussing and I agree with it as a concept. But I also think it's a bit... It's a bit airy-fairy, isn't it? (laughs) I don't. So here we disagree. I mean, I really don't. I feel as if even a curmudgeon, and I'm not calling you one because I think you're adorable. Go on, you can. Um, I'm okay with it. I know, but I don't know that you are. I'm just, that's your, (laughs) that's my word for you describing yourself somewhat like that, looking for the shoe to drop. I think even a curmudgeon can learn to pull down the veil a bit to, to, 
to open himself just slightly more, to be slightly less defensive, or to expect just a little less negativity in someone else. I don't want someone who is um, protective of themselves to drop the veil completely. I think people are shit in general. It's true that many people will abuse you and do take advantage of others in ways that are despicable and grotesque. I think that's part of being human. But I also have learned that I'm strong enough to deal with that. And I'm open to seeing the better sides of them and whether or not some of that awfulness is worth looking past to help them be better. I, and I don't think it's airy-fairy. I don't think it's, it's uh, phony. Clearly, there are times when you can look at a guy, engage with a guy and know, oh God, this is way too big a heap of shit for me to even be near. I just don't want to deal with any of his issues. Um, that's fine. But when you're in that place of not being sure and you think, oh God, there are red flags, well, buckle up, brother. <laughs> People, everybody's got some red flags. Everybody's got some issues. And they're, they might be well justified in reacting the way that they are. And, and I've met many a man who, in conversation, can learn things about himself and move past some of the challenges that he faces. I've loved people who've wanted to try and understand me, and so I, I try to do the same. So just on that, so just on that, Terp. And I don't think it's airy-fairy. <laughs> okay, but just on that tip, yeah. all the language you've just used and all the things you've used to describe the way that you relate to other people has made... Hmm, how am I going to say this? <laughs> Bluntly. Are you a fixer? Um, I think not. Okay. I think I could have been. And I think I could be, but I don't think that's what I, you know, looking for that uh, problem and trying to fix it. And that's why I'm single. Um, I don't think so. I, I don't know if my closest friends or, or therapist would say. If you are one of Richard's friends, why not dial in and leave a message and let us know? <laughs> I am drawn to helping people understand themselves and meaningful engagement gives me a boner. Uh, there's no question about it. Superficiality is something to which I'm allergic in general. I can do it. Uh, but oh, it's ugh, so boring. It does bore me to tears. <laughs> but, but you've just said, uh, I, I want to help people understand yeah. themselves. What if yeah. they already understand themselves? I love it. That's just it. Love that. That means for me, typically, when I encounter someone who can express who they are and has a level of comfort with their understanding of themselves, we can move on to other meaningful issues. So that's why I come to the answer that I'm not just a fixer because I, I don't find myself dismissing those who feel as if they do understand themselves. And I have others in my life, like my sister, uh, looking for folks who are somewhat self-aware because they know I, I, or they believe I'm, I would be attracted to that and would engage and there might be something, something there. Okay. 
to share the journey with someone self-aware. <laughs> oh, I mean, self-awareness, it's like it's not a destination, right? It's this thing that you're constantly working on. No, I don't think and so. And that's what just makes it so unappealing. Like, I want to get there and I want to be there. I don't want to have to keep working on myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think... I'm being a little facetious here, okay? Right. <laughs> I think that I like to work on myself, but maybe not with the urgency that I once had and not in an exhausting way. So do you think that's because you have enough of an understanding of yourself that it doesn't seem urgent or you got bored of yourself? Not bored. I I, I don't find I love myself. (laughs) I really do. You can love yourself and still get bored. Um, Can you? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, you can. Maybe. I've not been there, let's just say that. I'm not bored. I don't find myself feeling bored often. If, if, if I'd be hard-pressed to recall a time I felt bored. Okay, I'm, I'm being just a contrarian now, so sorry if I'm yeah, taking us okay. down a rabbit hole that we needn't be going down. I like it. It gets me thinking. <laughs> so I want to talk about nakedness. Okay. I like talking about nakedness. You brought this up before, that you had experiences of being naked at Lost and Found when you were working there. Oh, Is yeah. that where you first started taking your clothes off during working hours? <laughs> it might be the only place I've taken my clothes <laughs> off during working hours. Um, it was a fun, a comfortable space in which, and I didn't take them off, by the way, uh, just so you'll Is this know. a humble brag? <laughs> a little bit, uh, in which to play. I mean, I, I made it quite easy. <laughs> Everything was attached with Velcro. <laughs> yeah, oh God, that was fun. They, they would rip, you know, a little bit, and then, you know, different times people would rip them more until there wasn't anything left, and it, I just didn't care. I enjoyed it. Um, so we talked earlier about the fact that when you were using the showers at school, you were ashamed of your body. Yeah. And then you overcame that. You, have you yeah. just been comfortable since then or is it an ongoing journey? No, I've been very, very comfortable since then. So one of the kind of main concepts for me is acceptance of my body. I am not what's thought of as, uh, you know, a gay ideal by anyone's imagination. Uh, and I have uh, a shape and a size and a, a just a body type that's all my own. And, you know, there are different groups, wolves and bears and... Um, Cubs and otters. And otters and, yeah, who celebrate the varying amounts of hair that they have on their body or weight that they carry or shape or muscles or lack of muscle, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I embrace them all, quite literally, when I get the chance. (laughs) With consent, right? With consent, right? Right? Of course with consent, sure. (laughs) Yeah, no, no. I think that that engagement with others, naked or otherwise, is something many gay men yearn for. And I've learned not just to be self-accepting, but open to it, open to the intimacy of it, open to the touch, open to the closeness, open to people's shyness and desire to take things slowly, to the entire range. It's just 
part of being men. To straight men who literally are straight, but who somehow are warmed by a closeness that they've not felt from other men. Uh, there's a whole spectrum of who we are as men that I've learned about. And frankly, I've learned more about it since my divorce than I could ever imagined I still needed to learn. I thought my sex life would be over. I thought I was um, just past most of that. Um, but in the last six years, I've blossomed in a way I did not uh, imagine possible. Okay, I want to know more about this, but let's center us back into Lost and Found. Okay. Was that the first place that you were like, yeah, I'm going to take my clothes off and I'm going to be okay with it? No, in fact, I didn't. I mean, I was kind of joking, but I wasn't. I never took my clothes off. Others did. And it happened a few times, not always. And I guess, particularly my following at the bar, felt my comfort, knew that it just didn't matter mm -hmm. to me. I mean, if somebody wanted to come over and look at my penis to see what was there, I was more than happy to let them do that. And, and people did. What was there? My penis. Oh, okay. <laughs> so it's not like a, a funny shape or anything. It's just a regular penis. Well, no, but, but certainly guys are curious. You know, what do you have? What size? What shape? Are you pierced? Are you not? Um, whatever their curiosity was, it made no matter to me. <laughs> I enjoyed the attention. I enjoyed helping people, particularly those I felt were somewhat restricted or, or felt somewhat shy themselves mm -hmm. to understand that they could be however made them comfortable with me, that I was not just open to that, that I enjoyed their being playful. Mm -hmm. And somehow that was communicated, somehow that knew, and, and I feel as if guys really related to that or... Or relaxed it's in it. It's a really interesting thing, isn't it? When you are comfortable and confident, that gives other people the permission to be comfortable. Certainly. Look, <laughs> it certainly was not from an egotistical perspective. So I was approachable. I mm. am, I think, approachable. I, I, I don't think people perceive me as um, an exhibitionist or... Uh, or someone who, and I'm not even saying there's anything wrong about that. I, I'm just saying for me, you know, I don't think of myself as anything special. In fact, just the opposite. I feel very comfortable with my, my just being a generally healthy male, you know, whatever that shape and size is, um, I'm not required to hide it and protect it and pretend that I don't have a body that I enjoy being naked with others with. Mm. So. <laughs> so let's jump forward then. You were saying that and that you've learned so much about the power. <laughs> I'm just in really cheesy mode, the power of being naked with other people. What, um, what have you learned? So I learned that I'm attractive I learned and I've accepted, for example, the idea that others, for whatever reasons, and they, those reasons vary, find me attractive. And it isn't limited by youth and age. I'd always imagined mm -hmm. the gay community to be something about youth and that once I'd passed that, that I was likely to be 
to be done with that phase. And I don't feel done with that phase. I don't feel old. I feel very sexual. I feel very in touch with myself and et cetera. But I did not know that I could still share that uh, later in life. And there've been no barriers from, you know, 20 somethings to, you know, my age uh, and beyond. I've connected with and enjoyed the company of, of men since my divorce. And it's wonderful. It's been enjoyable. I, I don't long to stay in this place of uh, what people think of when they think of single and gallivanting. Um, I don't experience it that way, but I am enjoying what life I'm living now without wallowing in the idea that, oh, but I don't have Oh, yeah, that's not going to get you him. anywhere. It, it's really no. interesting <laughs> to hear you talk about this expectation versus reality and how we are taught constantly that once you get to 30, that's it for you. In gay years, you may as well be dead. You're done. And how that isn't really the case, but that we all have internalized that message somehow. I really had. I don't know. I didn't even think about it much. I just just had internalized that. I thought, oh, this is a youthful thing. Mm. It's not. You know, it's, it's just not. I feel as vibrant and engaged... As ever. (laughs) But it is super interesting that we're just constantly bombarded with these messages. And how do you, within that sea of shit, maintain that position and maintain that understanding that, yeah, I'm pretty fucking sexy. Well, I don't wallow in that either. Um, I'm still a little surprised by it, but accepting of it. And I've learned to accept it by thinking, you know, I'm attracted to and find sexy a very wide swath of men. And who am I to... As long as they have no guile, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't know about none, but um, (laughs) guileless is preferable. Uh, Yeah, I don't want them plotting and twisting and superficial and pretending and... Anyway, (laughs) I want them to be or to learn to be or to be happy being open and vulnerable and trusting because I'm worth being that with. I'm someone my partner can trust. I'm someone with whom he can talk about anything and I will be a listener and supportive and Someone who can't accept that, who, who isn't in a sufficiently healthy place to kind of love themselves enough to, to, to accept that, probably wouldn't, wouldn't be well-suited to journey with me for too long, you know? So we've gone all about the houses. I'm not sure how much we've actually talked about Lost and Found. Oh. But. Well, it was just a gem in my life, you know. So with that in mind then. What did Lost and Found teach you about yourself? Well, as one of those first Goldilocks places, one of those first initial, wow, I love this and I love me in this and here. Um, I guess it taught me to look for that, to resonate with that, the, the people and the place and the 
way of being that was me then. And that, I think, is me now. Um, I try to make it less about the external environment and more about who we are wherever we are. And I love doing it. I just, I just like doing it. And I find most folks are intrigued by my efforts to make life fun, playful, meaningful, all at the same time. I don't, feel, I don't find much resistance. <laughs> so taking us into full cheese mode, like all the way, okay. right? And I know you love cheese. You've let's already go. told me, so <laughs> let's go there. I do. If you had the opportunity to go back in time and have a conversation with the rich that just showed up at that mm-hmm. bar or just started working at that bar who was collecting his tips whilst naked and putting them in a jar, maybe in a jar? Is that where they went? Anyway, if you had an opportunity to speak to him, what words of advice would you give? Love you more. Um, I think I was at the place where I was learning to love myself and doing so as best I was able then. But the advice would begin with, encouraging myself to do that fully, to love yourself, to to recognize that you will often be looked at as someone different, often looked at as uh, unique, and perhaps often misunderstood. And no one, I could never even share now with me then how misunderstood I might be as a result of my worldwide exposure on that show, but I would try to help me love me regardless, just more fully, more completely, uh, irrespective of the external cacophony. Do you have any memories of Lost and Found in Washington, D.C., or maybe clubbing from your own queer scene that you want to share? Well, if you do, why not get in touch? I want to create the biggest online record of people's memories and stories of queer clubbing, but I can't do it alone. I need your help. Go to lostspacespodcast.com, find the section, share a lost space, and then tell me all about what it is you got up to and I always always give bonus points for embarrassing photos you can also reach out to me on Facebook or on Instagram where my handle is lost spaces pod find out more about Richard by visiting his website richhatch.com or following him across socials and I'll make sure to include all of the links within the show notes for this episode If you enjoyed this episode and this conversation, I would really appreciate if you took the time to subscribe, leave a review on your podcast platform, or just tell other people who you think might enjoy it too and might be interested in giving it a little listen. My name's Kay Anderson, and you have been listening to Lost Spaces. Lost Spaces.